Um, I'm Jen Boland, and we're going to be talking about um, embracing changes. If you were here for the If 6 Were 9 panel, I'm going to go in-depth a little more to the requirements in the various states about the um, morphine equivalents, and then I'm going to show you some of the testimony uh, that happened in a trial this summer and show you some of the things that the expert testified to. It's in brief and it's redacted because I can't show you the actual trial transcript. It hasn't been released yet by the federal court, but I've redacted it. So uh, we're going to go through those things and I'm hoping to leave time for questions and it be, would be better to have them at the end because I think sometimes you guys have a lot of questions and I'm perfectly happy uh, covering them and not overly repeating material. This is a different slide deck than we used the other day. Um, the citations for it uh, are in the body of the slide deck. They're going to put that up on the pain week uh, program so you can access it. The only thing you won't be able to see are the actual expert testimony until that's unembargoed. Okay, so uh, these are my disclosures. All right, it's off. I'll turn it on. <laughs> I got up a little late today. Um, it's still not working. There it goes. All right, good. These are my disclosures, and uh, not a lot relevant to this, but I put them up there just in case. And um, the real goal of this lecture is to give you some other ideas about things you can do when you get back to your practices next week to you know, really just continue walking forward and feeling more comfortable about your compliance we don't have a lot of choice right now in these states. You're going to have to make some of these changes or tighten up things a little bit, and, and that's a good place to be because you don't want to be defiant and you don't want to be fearful. So I'm hoping we can cover some of those things. And there, the changes are happening, um, you know, in a way that the patients are also kind of caught up in this, and probably the best way to handle patients that are a little bit freaked about some of these things would be education. And so there's a lot of free educational materials um, on the SAMHSA website, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration website. They have a really good uh, overdose prevention toolkit that has a component for family members and patients. I, I have it in, in this slide deck and I highly recommend that you get that and start to give it out to your patients and make it a proactive um, good discussion of, you know, yeah, this thing's going on. I want you to be comfortable that I'm doing my best to protect your access to care, but I need you to do these things. I need you to uphold your responsibilities. I need you to be educated. I need you to take the time to read these materials, and I need you to take everything very seriously. Uh, and, you know, I know that that's tough. I've sat there and watched practitioner after practitioner engage in dialogue with patients and trying to get the staff kind of rounded up to do the right things. And in the time frame that you have, you know, it almost seems impossible at times. I get that. But it really is, in my opinion, one of the best ways to, you know, make it apparent that you have embraced your responsibilities and that you fully intend to carry them out in good faith. Uh, good faith is very helpful, and it shows up in your paperwork. It shows up in your habits and routines in your practice. And, you know, some habits and routines won't help you a lot, and others will. Um, and I want to say this because it's on my head right now. One of the routines that often gets people kind of on the wrong track is the routine of giving 
a patient, when they first come to your office, a big stack of paper that includes the informed consent, you think, and the treatment agreement, a.k.a. narcotic contract, and it ends up turning more into a piece of paper than the process. So it's not that you can't give it out at the beginning like that, but, you know, if you remember the other day, if you were here when I made the argument, um, to me, the strongest argument comes with an ongoing interaction and dialogue with the patient that shows that you have them first in the relationship, that you know that you have time constraints, you know that you don't know everything, but in everything that you do do, the patient is at the center of the equation. When you just hand a patient a piece of paper, you're almost telling them, don't pay much attention to it, just sign it and give it back to me, because that's what happens, right? You know, you don't necessarily sit there and watch a patient read this material, but when it comes to informed consent issues with opioid prescribing or any controlled medication, you really want the testimony to come out that it was more than the piece of paper, that your staff said, no, our routine is that we go over this with the patient. We do give it to them at the beginning. We do want them to read it. We know that they don't often read it while they're sitting in the waiting room. That's why we revisit it with them. And then if we make big changes, we revisit it again in a different way. And then on an annual basis, we revisit a lot of things. And we may revisit the treatment agreement. So you've got to think of things that way. Now, do you have to do it on any particular time frame? Not necessarily so, but it needs to make sense. It needs to be something that you would be proud to put out there on a courtroom screen if that should happen to you. And so your paper does make a lot of difference. And if you've picked it up from people but never really read it and matched it up against what your state licensing board says in a pain management guideline or rule, might be time to do that, to make sure that it really does mirror the language there and that you don't have typos and you're not using law enforcement terms like narcotics and things. And it, I say this a lot of times when I speak. It really is important to pay attention to these things. So we're coming into the end of the year, and you're coming up on a new year, and it might be that you make plans to take, you know, the next the month of September to get familiar with your state rules, you know, maybe part of October to look at your forms and do some updates to them, and then plan for how you're going to bring it out at the beginning of the year, um, you know, through your patients. Each time they come in, it's time for something new new update, okay? You don't have to do it all next week. But it is important to go through that process yourself every single year. And I promise you, you will not ever regret that you did that. But you might regret that you didn't, okay? And I don't mean that as a threat. I just mean it as sincerely as I can tell you. You know, I see what happens when you end up in the courtroom and it's really hard to make that stuff look really good if you haven't done it then it's too late. So that's kind of how I would approach this if I were in your shoes. So I'm not going to ask the first question because I asked that in the old term, but if you haven't read the CDC opioid guidelines after everything that's been on at this conference, please read them. Um, had anybody looked at the national pain strategy? Anybody in the room read it? Okay, good. Read it. It's not necessarily in the top five list of things to do, but it's something that will give you a little more background and understanding. Um, how about uh, if you don't currently educate your patients on the use of naloxone? Raise your hand. Be honest, all right? 
The easy way to do that is to take that SAMHSA handbook and, and read it and then give it out. Make sure your staff reads it too. Educating people about the signs and symptoms of overdose from a very consumer perspective might save a life. And so, um, you know, the naloxone education is contained within that document. There are other ways to get it. You, you know, the companies that market it have a lot of materials out. That's up to you what you're going to use. Uh, how many of you prescribe opioids in the face of a positive marijuana uh, drug test result? How many of you done that? Okay. That happens, right? It's what we say to the paper when it happens that's really important and how we handle the follow-up with the patient. I'm going to show you what an expert testified to this summer, a government expert, and what they said about it. doesn't mean they say it every time, but this guy said it, and this guy has contact with a lot of people uh, in the expert witness community, and it might mean that other people would say the same thing. How about prescribing opioids and benzos? How many do that currently? Okay, again, it's an issue you have to be sensitive to. Um, and the reason is obvious from all of the lectures that have come out. It's not that you can't, but you have a lot of pressure to revisit whether you should. All right? Should this patient have the combination opioid and benzo? Am I the doctor, pretend I'm a doctor for a minute, am I trained enough to know about the benefits of using benzos long term in terms of helping somebody with some sort of you know, mental health or behavioral health issue? Is that in your scope of practice or do they need a referral? Are you comfortable that having the patient on the benzo and opioid going into the sixth or seventh year is a really good idea? Can you explain it in writing? Is it something that one of your peers looking at your rationale would say, oh, yeah, I get it, that sounds good? Or would they look at you like, what? Maybe not a good idea. You have to look and evaluate those things. And sometimes the hardest thing for everybody to do, and lawyers face the same thing, is to look into the mirror and say, am I really doing my best shot within my scope of practice here? And I know you run businesses. I get that but you've got to pay attention to the movement on opioids and benzos. How about, and this is the one that maybe isn't as obvious. Any of you allow 60 to 90 days or more between visits? Anybody go four months or five months with their patients on chronic opioid therapy? Really? Promise? Good. I don't think that's a safe zone anymore. There used to be the folks with, um, in Florida, you know, the snowbird issue or the folks up north, um, you know, when you have people moving around for the seasonal change, um, they used to go six months and not see the people. That's very dangerous in this environment for all the reasons you've heard at this conference. So, you know, one of the things besides kind of getting a handle on morphine equivalents, especially in the states that have those changes, is to get a handle on your last visit with some of your patients. If it's gone beyond three months, Start paying attention to those people. Bring those people up to date. Get a new summary in the record, because if you're only seeing some people four times a year, here's where it gets even more complicated. Many of you are using um, uh, advanced practice nurses to do the work of seeing the patients on medication instead of the physician seeing them. You need to really pay attention to how involved you are as a physician. Um, a lot of times the board is expecting the physician to have involvement with 
the patient. And that's not to say that the nurse practitioner, advanced practice nurse, or physician assistant can't do things on their own, but the physician is ultimately responsible. And because of that, you have to show involvement. In a lot of anesthesia-based practices, most often the physician maybe sees the patient once in the first six months, and then two or three or four years will go by, and the only time they see them is when they're getting a butt shot or something like that. They don't really engage them on the medication management level. And that's very dangerous for you, the physician. And so there's not a lot of um, states that have cut and dry rules on how often the physician should see the patient, but you want to look at the language in your licensing board guideline and see if it says the physician is expected to. That doesn't mean that it's the nurse practitioner expected to. It means the physician is expected to. And I realize there's a difference between the nursing board and the medical board, but when they write those guidelines and the medical board says the physician is expected to do something, if your paperwork doesn't back you up, that can create a big problem for you. So, you know, focusing on things like that is really important. All right, so this is just a quick refresher. We've heard this a lot. What makes a controlled substance valid? It's only valid if it meets all the technical requirements uh, of the DEA. There's a legitimate medical purpose documented. You are prescribing in the usual course of professional practice, and you take reasonable steps to prevent abuse and diversion. And um, the technical requirements, sometimes you can make mistakes on those, and it's not a big deal. You can fix it. Other times it can be a problem, and I'm going to show you a slide here in a minute and give you some context um, where you think you're meeting the technical requirements, but in reality you're not. This is the standard that's used in federal court, criminal court. It's also what's used in uh, any kind of state action because most states follow the same sort of requirements. Um, they've incorporated what the DEA has said needs to be done. This legitimate medical purpose, that's your diagnosis, your evaluation of the patient leading to the reason that you're giving them the opioid or the other controlled medication. Because this requirement is about controlled medications, not just opioids. So this applies across the board, even in the amphetamine world, all right? Um, so you always want to think, what's the reason I'm giving it to this patient? Is there one or more generally recognized uh, medical indications or clinical indications for the use of the drug? If so, what are they? If you have too general of a diagnosis and you haven't flagged it as a working diagnosis because you're waiting on some reports to come back, that could be a problem because just saying somebody has chronic pain or just saying somebody is ADD, ADHD, whatever deserves amphetamines may not be enough if the workup isn't going to support you. So. Remember that, and this is more about diagnosis and the initial evaluation. Down here, usual course of professional practice is the stuff that the reasonably prudent practitioner would do. Reasonably prudent is the standard that that is used to evaluate that. Some people will say it a little bit different, but that goes into the stuff that your licensing board say you should be doing when you're taking care of people for pain management and some states have policies that go beyond that into different areas of practice. So um, I kind of divided it out, and you'll see this when you're, uh, if you look at the slides from online. Uh, this is what I want you to think about when you're looking for uh, legitimate medical purpose. And this well-written treatment plan with treatment goals is probably one of the most 
focused on items that happens in the courtroom. What is your treatment plan? How did you arrive at it? What did you pull in from the patient's desires? Are they realistic? Are you going to track them? When are you going to start tracking them? How often are you going to see the patient? That's that slow dance thing, especially with a new patient. Taking the time to build that treatment plan and goals and the revisiting of it for like the first six months or so that you have a new patient in the practice. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to why it's so important to, to slow down and do this at the beginning? Undercovers. Undercover investigators. The easiest way to survive a potential undercover visit is to do your job. Okay? And that means slowing down when you have new patients come in enough that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing. You lay hands where it's appropriate. You talk with them. Your ears are tuned in for these things like, yeah, I used one of my, patient, my friend's uh, hydrocodone tablets, and it really made me feel good. And I don't really hurt every day, but I'd sure like to have some of those. And my buddy said I could get them from you. You, you know, you guys are going to react in the right manner to a story like that. But an undercover is not going to necessarily do it all in one sentence. It gets sprinkled through. So remember that there is always the potential for an undercover visit. And I don't want you to think that there's a million undercovers out there targeting you guys, but they know how to come in and they know if you have a reputation for not ever doing an appropriate physical exam because people talk. Okay? And so thinking about what your state requires and putting it in the context of those early visits with new patients is so, so critical. And the same thing with established patients. They're not going to be the undercover, but it's still important to revisit and update on a, a basis that relates to what that patient needs. Usual course, I've already kind of covered that. The big thing is documentation. And the, the loose phrase that comes out is standard of care. Uh, I, you know, Nobody really knows what that means. Uh, you have to start at a minimum with your licensing board requirements, and then the reasonably prudent stuff gets stacked upon it. And then reasonable steps are the things we've always talked about, but the one I want you to focus on as you go back home is use of consultations and referrals. You all know by now that you know using the database, unless you're in Missouri, right, um, using drug testing, medication counts. Some states require them, some states don't. Um, but the end one is, um, are you in a position where this person really needs to go out on a referral basis, or do you need to pick up the phone and call somebody for a consult to make sure that your questions are answered about that individual, even sending somebody over for a consult, however you all do those things. Um, that is what's missing in many of the charts. Things get out of control. People get up on higher doses, and then all of a sudden you're having to deal with it, and sometimes the action is do nothing, and that's a bad place to be, especially if that person needs outside help. So don't hesitate to get that, and one of the things you might consider doing is a little bit the reverse. You know, I've considered um, the issue of consults and referrals with, for this patient. At this time, I don't think the patient needs one, but we'll revisit it in the next couple of months and see how their progress is. They're not making progress 
with your treatment plan, and they come in and they continue to report, you know, nines and tens with their medication for pain management, something's not working, okay? They're telling you something's not working. It's written down in paper that something's not working. In the trial that we had this summer, the expert emphasized it. They said that this, these patients came in and they reported these numbers, which nobody really knows how to interpret, right? We just know what the scale says we're supposed to do. But the expert looked at it to see if the physician did anything in response to the constant signal with the pain levels that something's not working with the medication on board. And the expert expected there would be adjustments or there would be consults and referrals, other types of um, you know, treatments, procedures, uh, adjuvant medications, even um, a question of changing the medication the patient was on because they are obviously telling you it's not working, according to the expert. So um, individualized care, super critical. And, you know, the hardest thing to do to individualize is your toolbox in the opioid world is fairly limited, right? You only have so many medications you can pick from. Well, you've got to explain that you're individualizing it to this patient and you need to get your rationale across. And so, you know, if you've picked oxycodone versus hydrocodone for somebody, you know, they've tried hydrocodone in the past, it didn't work, it gave them a headache, whatever it is. Don't think that those statements are, you know, so minor that they don't belong in your medical record. They do. And you have to find a way to take that rationale and get it in writing. And I can't really tell you exactly how to do that in each of your practices, but I can tell you, again, it's worth the effort if you're starting a patient and it looks like you're starting a lot of your patients on the same regimen of medication, start saying why it's individualized to them, why this is, you think this is where you should start for that person. Because that's what they look for when it comes to going through these things in front of a jury, especially. That's the extreme. Hold on to your questions, Jack. Um, the extreme is the jury sees the paper in the courtroom. They see the medical chart that you created. They see stuff that all looks the same in boilerplate. And then after they've been through 10 medical charts or more in the courtroom, same thing in the hearing for a licensing board case. The expert says everything looks the same. The jury picks up on that really fast. So if you have statements in there that show you are talking to your patient, Jennifer went on a picnic with her family. She's doing better on this regimen. Showing the function, showing you know the patient as an individual can really help. And those EMRs aren't going to help you get there, so you're going to have to figure out a way to individualize even if you're bringing some boilerplate forward because that's how your, your EMR system works. Um, all right, so this is something I want to make a point of. One of the things that we had a bad fact in our case this summer, we could never get around it. Everybody thinks they're safe. They're not. Do not pre-sign blank prescriptions. Do not pre-sign them and put them in safes and think that you'll never get caught. Because if there's a search warrant, they're going to go into the safe. They're going to take the safe if they have to. They're going to crack it open and whatever's in there, they get to take. And in the situation we had, a bad fact, there was a pad 
of pre-signed blank prescription forms. Undated, locked up, safe in terms of nobody being able to really get their hands on it. But the testimony came out, and this is where you have to realize that your staff is often used as witnesses in these cases against you. They're used as witnesses. They're going to come in and tell the truth. He left them in there pre-signed or she left them in there pre-signed in case they weren't in the office today and somebody came in and needed a prescription. Well, that's a real fact in life. That can happen, right? Physician or practitioner who prescribes may not be there and the reality is a patient may need something. But you do not pre-sign blank prescriptions for that event because it's a very bad thing. It's not only a technical problem for you, it's illegal and it says it in the Federal Register. Uh, and so it's one of those things that I know because I've been in enough practices and I know how they work, but please don't do that, especially if you have, you're sitting in this room and you have a licensing board case against you. Some people do, and, and that happens. And you're a professional long enough, somebody's going to throw an arrow at you, right? And you can go in and you can be confident you're going to get cleared, but that's pending right now, and you don't want anybody saying that that's what you do because they'll ask that question. The DEA will always ask that question. And it's not so hard to figure out the different handwritings and how things might happen. So don't do it. They must be dated and signed on the date issued to the patient. Here's the Code of Federal Register um, section that says that. And there's my warning again, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Okay, and here's some of the stuff that says it. So I'm not going to go into that because I want to get to these changes right now. So lots of things have happened this year, and there's more changes coming. I went and looked on the, um, you know, the legislative sessions are getting ready to reopen again, and um, that's common after Labor Day, and you'll see a lot more stuff happening. And you need to be able to track what your licensing board's doing in response to the CDC stuff. Sign, assign somebody in your office to check your board for opioid or pain management guidelines at least once a month, okay? Some of you are in states that are so active you might want to do it every other week just for the next month or so and see what happens. Others of you can go to a website like SPAN, the State Pain Policy Advocacy Network, and they actually have um, a, leg a legislative tracker that you can use and see and pick on your state and see what's going on. That might actually be easier to use than to go to your own licensing board. And that, I've got the um, SPAN address in here in just a minute. Um, lots of things happening with payers and law enforcement, and you've heard all that. One of the things that I think is a big deal that's happened, and I don't know if any of the other lecturers talked about it, but um, over the summer, there's a new rule now that allows an expanded number of patients to be treated um, for you know, medication-assisted treatment using buprenorphine by properly qualified clinicians. And they went up to 275 patients, but you can't go to 275 until you pass through the toll booths to get there. You have to qualify. How many in this room have an X registration? Okay, so you probably know about this and have heard about this, and if you've already been at the 100 level, then you can see if you're qualified to go to 275. Let me suggest to you that you really want to do more than just the eight hours of training that might be available. You want to keep your training up constantly 
in this area. And I know that we've, we're getting some signals in Knoxville, Tennessee, about overdose deaths related to folks that are in medication-assisted treatment on buprenorphine of some form, right, suboxone, and benzodiazepines. And I don't know why that is, and I haven't seen all the autopsy reports, but they're starting to get signals and they're starting to pay a lot more attention to the MAT uh, clinics. And so if you're going to 275 because you're qualified and you put your intent notice in, make sure you are really up to date and that you are controlling things in those clinics because they're focusing on them right now and they're doing audits uh, of everybody that's ex-registered. They're going in. So, I mean, I had a guy contact me yesterday on the West Coast. He only has three people on Suboxone in his clinic, and he got visited by DEA for an audit on that. All right? And, and he's still there. He's still practicing, but he's scared because they're going out and taking a look at are you really doing it the right way. I, it's not my fault they're doing it. But I'm telling you they're doing it, and I want you to be prepared for it. So that means make sure you have the right paperwork. Make sure you are qualified. Make sure you're current on your training. Make sure you're being very careful about adding in other medications to these patients that are using um, Suboxone or being treated for opioid dependence. Really, really be careful. You would do that anyway. Um, and, you know, there, everybody knows there's money being poured into all the states for medication-assisted treatment. And so we're going to see a big uptick take continue on the creation of these clinics that are treating these folks, and we're going to see more problems come out of that arena. I guarantee you it'll happen. There'll be more investigations, and some of those clinics will get shut down, just like some of the pain, pain clinics did as pill mills, because you're going to find that some of the MAT clinics really aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. There are some that do it, and they do a great job, and then there are others that are in there just taking cash as fast and quickly as they can and opening up little pods all over the country, and DEA is going to go take a look at them, and so will local law enforcement. If you're in one of those clinics, make sure you your paperwork, your house is in order. Um, now, CDC stuff, I am not going to go into everything that was there before, but I am going to show you some new slides that I added in. These are the examples that come from SPAN, and that is going to be on the updated slide list that you get. They already have a copy of it. That's the link to a handout that is about eight pages. Uh, Steve Ziegler said the other day that he was one of the authors on it. I am as well. We are part of the group that edited um, and took all of the content from around the country and spelled out the states that have morphine equivalent values in their guidelines or rules, and we created examples of patients so you can see how it's different in the different states, and uh, gave you the synopses of the states that have the, the restrictions, uh, gave you the citations to them so that you can take a look if you're in one of those states. So this is what the table inside that document looks like. It actually lists the states there and kind of gives you an idea of whether the state is recommending that something be done at the particular morphine equivalent level or requiring that something would be done. And the other day I said that the biggest focus or central idea that seems to overlap is actually the consult referral component. And you will see that as you read through this material. 
So um, how many of you all are in one of those states? All right. Homework. All right. Have you all read, the, for those of you that raised your hand, have you read the new rule or, or guideline in your state? Yes? Who hasn't? Who didn't know that it had happened? That's okay. Great. This is the time to get studied up on it and do something and make sure you understand what your state is asking that you do or telling you to do. Which state are you in? California? Okay, your stuff is a, is a recommendation, so that's easy. Are you in California as well? You're in South Carolina? All right. Your situation is a recommendation, um, so that's easy. But make sure that you are considering what's recommended. I'm going to show you what those things are uh, in just a minute. And when you consider it, you want to document it. One second. You want to document it either way. I've considered, and I haven't done it because... Or I've considered, and I'm doing it, and here's how I'm doing it. Those are the kind of things that you need to get out of your head and down on paper. Even if it has some sort of template component to it, make sure it's individualized to the person. Yes, ma'am. Right. Yes. I think it's all coming. If you look at the state concentration, most of these are out east right? Huge heroin problems. Um, and you, you have, of course, the two big West Coast states, and then you've got kind of Colorado in the middle there. But I think that there's going to be a lot of major changes in still probably the next six to nine months. I think a lot of states are sitting back waiting to see kind of the fallout that the other states pick so that they can be reasonable. Arizona tends to be more reasonable than some of the other states and more as a suggestion or recommendation, but their board isn't when they do investigations. The board is very harsh when they get to an investigative capacity. So they have permissive language on the front end, but on the back end, it's, whoo, there goes your head. Okay? And so they have what's called aggravating and mitigating circumstances that are written into the rule or the code there uh, in Arizona, and the board uses those and weighs them based on the charts that are being reviewed or the conduct that's being reviewed. So even though you don't have the, the strictness that some of these other states do, they haven't really given you much guidance. So anyway, and it wouldn't hurt to look at these other states. And again, as I said the other day, you know, just because your state doesn't have a, a morphine equivalent value in its pain management rule or guideline doesn't mean you shouldn't do something at those, those, those toll booths. So the 50... Uh, if you're a family practitioner, the 50 toll booth, the 80 or 90, excuse me, 90 toll booth for them. You can have one at 80 if you're in California, and you can have one at 120 if you're somewhere else. I don't care what you do, but I would use all of the ones that I saw across the country and say, how can I make this work in my practice? It's worth the effort to just read that handout that I put the link in for. It'll save you some time and get you thinking about just how crazy some of these things are but it'll help you think about how you can document. All right, so the question is, is there an exception for hospice or is it just 100 milligrams across the road? Uh, in, depending what state you're in. Yeah, Maine's the one that's really messed up. I'm gonna show you the language from it in a minute. Most of these states have as an exemption hospice, end of life, palliative care, active cancer treatment, but some of them don't really spell it out, and they've left it more general. Um, so you're gonna, you know, if you're in hospice and that's what you do, 
are you actually in Maine, or that's just the one you looked at? Okay, well, your state has a, a more of a permissive look on uh, opioids with folks in hospice, so you're in a good situation, but you still want to be able to give some rationale as to why you're giving a particular level that you are. And it's, it's in your situation, it's more to make sure that you didn't intentionally end somebody's life. In other words, you're keeping them comfortable and you're, you're evaluating as carefully as you can the pain, the risks and benefits related to giving them a particular level um, of opioid uh, and that you don't have any intent to hurt them at all, okay? Because I know that that's a really real problem in your situation. Great question. How do these uh, rules or guidelines apply to a pain specialist? The state of California doesn't distinguish between specialists and family physicians. Their opioid prescribing or pain management uh, handbook, it goes to the licensees for the state medical board. Uh, if you go to Colorado, it goes to all licensees. It's not directed at family physicians. If you go to Indiana, they don't really distinguish except for the referral here where they kind of go, if you're here and you know your family, you're going to go to the referral there. For you as a specialist in that particular state, you'd want to consider the same things, but it doesn't mean you can't go above and it doesn't mean you have to refer to anybody else once you cross a particular marker. However, and I think this was Doug Gourlay that said this the other day, it doesn't mean that you, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't go buy it, but you may want to consult with somebody in your practice or get just kind of a peer take on it if you have any questions. If it's just you, document. I'm doing this because, all right? And, you know, the emphasis is down, down, down. That may be the right thing for 75% of your patients and the other 25%, they may deserve the higher doses. Whatever the case, you need to make it really clear why you're embarking on that continued treatment plan. Again, I, this is horrible to deal with. It's horrible to deal with as a lawyer, too, trying to give guidance, you know, how you say, well, what do I need to do to be safe? I, I don't know any more than you do, but I can say that one of the things is is common sense and be prudent about it. You know, be aware that if you're in one of these states that they think something should happen at those levels. And if you're in Maine, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> So let me go through a couple of these and I'll get your question in a second. I want to leave time for questions and I'm almost done with this deck. So um, you see Indiana here, you've had a chance to consider it. When it reaches 60, a face-to-face -face review of the treatment plan and patient evaluation must be scheduled. This is not an option in Indiana. It must be scheduled and consider it, including consideration. So that part appears to be directed at the family physicians. But in Indiana, it's a little odd because they have that really stringent guideline. If you're in Indiana, I've seen it. And it was put out, I think, by the medical society and not by the board itself. And so now you've got kind of a combination or a hybrid, and you really want to pay attention to both of those documents and make sure that you are answering their request to do something or demand. Okay, if you're not going to do it, write down why. Give a thoughtful explanation. Here's the main thing. Unless an exception applies, you can't exceed it. The exception is hospice, end of life, palliative care, active cancer treatment. 
uh, that sort of thing, okay? So um, that's actually rational in terms of the exception, but completely arbitrary in terms of the amount, in my opinion. That's my opinion only, because it, you know, giving six months to get all these papers tapered, if they're already above it, is a little bit scary too. Um, and so uh, they have a big problem up there, and I think it's going to continue. Um, New Hampshire, when a patient receives for longer than 90 days, you shall document the consideration of a, consult, a consultation. And then their language here, going back to the pain specialist question, consultation with an appropriate specialist. So here's how I could envision a specialist might end up reaching out to another specialist. So you're reaching the value with the opioid, but you've also had a benzo on board for a while, or the patient really never seems to be making any progress, and, and it's puzzling you a little bit. That might be when the specialist reaches out and says, look, we've gone over this line here, and even though it's not really directed at you, it would be good to consider whether that's appropriate. Behavioral health, something like that if it hasn't been done. Now, that's easier said than done, right? Because our system doesn't support that, right? You can't always get somebody into a specialist on time. You can't always get it paid for in certain areas, and not only in areas of the country, but areas of practice, of medicine. And so um, I don't know what to do there. I really do believe that this whole playing field is ripe for a class action back against a, a payer. And I think you'll see something like that start. There'll be discussion between lawyers and the payers when some individual physician gets knocked with a licensing board investigation and they've been trying to get these um, things covered, trying to get a patient in on a, a consult with a behavioral health specialist and the payer denied, denied, denied. And I think at that point in time, there will be a threat made by that lawyer to that health plan. You're going to assume the liability here. If you keep saying no, you keep requiring us to use methadone first line, you keep doing this, you keep doing that, you're not paying for drug testing, you're not da-da-da, it'll get there. And maybe after the election year, people will come to some, you know, after November, they'll come back to their senses, maybe. Um, so anyway, you get the idea, and you do see in here informed consent being uh, considered in South Carolina for the person that's from, gentleman from South Carolina. Um, strongly consider reestablishing informed consent. And if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't just give them a paper and say, here's informed consent, sign it, thank you. I would say, hey, we've crossed this thing. I want to sit down and give you some updates on where we are with your treatment plan, the medication you're taking. Here's that piece of paper we call informed consent, but I want to give you this education too, and I'm considering requiring that you get a naloxone kit of some way, shape, or form. And that's another thing that's not very covered, but um, you certainly want to make that uh, discussion happen with the patient. In Vermont, when you see the word shall, that means they require it. And then we talked about Washington. So this is just kind of, I went through this list the other day and ticked it off really quick, but this is the language that relates to it. And the handout is cited within this deck. So you can go get the PDF, print it out, read it, and look at it as, a, as an opportunity to 
slow down a little bit and update some of your paperwork. So here's the resources for the table that I showed you. And they show the different code sections. And you could go in there and Google that. And in some cases, there's an actual link. So not every one of these is in a PDF file. You have to make your own. So you get taken to the legislative area. And you have to know the section uh, to be able to get to the document in those states. And I think that if you're not in one of these states, just reading this document and looking at the general tone of what is being asked would be very helpful. So I say, and this is a slide that I've used on pain weekends. This is just an example of some toll booths. And I just put in which entity. And I didn't go add the new ones in yet because it would get really messy. But you can make your own and just have the marker and consider as a reminder what you might want to do. Okay? If you're in a state where it's permissive and it's not required, this is just a reminder to think about something. And if you're not going to do something at that level, then think about whether you should write it down. Uh, and if you are going to do something, you're going to document it. Um, now, here's the stuff on the testimony. Once upon a time, there was a government medical expert uh, who testified this summer in criminal court. And here's part of his testimony. Now, this is clipped out. I'm not misleading you about his testimony, but there's no way I can show you everything this guy said. I can't tell you right now because I'm embargoed. But he is a pain specialist, was not practicing. He's five years removed from practicing, which in itself, in my opinion, should be disallowed and unethical for an expert. And I'm working to try to get more expert ethics codes up into the academy so that, and beefed up in the ones that already have them, so that we can have more tools to go after these people. All right? And so um, this person sold his practice several years ago and has gone around the country serving as an expert. It's pretty much what he does now. He's a gun for hire. And he testified in the Schneider case uh, in Kansas. And, and there was a conviction there with the overdose death. So he, he says that opioids are first-line treatment for cancer pain when the pain is severe enough. Now, here's how it looks. So this is the prosecutor and the expert um, talking before the jury. Tell the jury about cancer pain, expert. Well, it's pain that's caused by invasion of cancer in your body. So in that situation, opioids would be a first-line treatment. But then watch what he says. Prosecutor, in your experience, are they often first-line treatment in cancer patients when the pain is severe enough? You see how he's putting a limitation on it? When it's severe enough by his standards or by the patient's standards, okay? So this guy, and, and this may not seem like a big deal to you, Believe me, when you add up all the things this guy says, it becomes a very big deal. Next one, opioids are a high-risk, non-evidence treatment of last resort. So here, um, this is the expert testifying. Well, what you're hoping to do with narcotics, that tells you right there that guy's frame of reference. What do you think it is? He's using the word narcotics. More law enforcement oriented. Right? A real clinician is going to say opioids and then maybe say that have a narcotic effect. That's why they're referred to as narcotics. Or opioid analgesics. Right? That word narcotics sends that ugly signal to the jury. And so um, the, he's saying uh, if you have to use it as treatment, it is to restore the person's function and quality of life so they can have a full and rich life. All right? Um, except for the 
if you have to use it. And the tone in which this guy testified, I cross-examined him. So the tone in which he testified was really obvious. And he was different for me than he was for the prosecutor in his own behavior. Um, so now, and the prosecutor, now, we're not saying that in each case, if a person is still having pain after three months, that they should not uh, need the drugs, are we? Expert, no, sir. There's a lot of other treatments you do as first-line treatment. That's a high-risk, non-evidence-based treatment of last resort, and that's the opioids he's referring to. Testimony doesn't come out real neat sometimes, and so you have to kind of go backwards and forwards as you're listening, or as you're reading it, rather. When you're listening, it seems to make a lot more sense. That is the prescription of narcotic drugs? Yes, sir. So he's tying the narcotic to the treatment of last resort. How do you feel about that? Make you sick to your stomach? What if I came into you and I can't have a lot of procedures because I have a blood clot disorder? All right? I can't take NSAIDs. I shouldn't take them because I take blood thinner. And, you know, what if my choice is I, I really don't want that one you think you can do by taking me off of um, uh, Coumadin and putting me on real expensive Lovenox to inject into my belly just so you can do this procedure because my internal medicine doctor is not going to allow that to happen. What if I'm one of those people? You can explain that and then so, Shay, we're going to pick the opioids or we're going to pick whatever, you know, medication that might be non-opioid but controlled is going to help there. You would be justified in doing that, but you don't have to do it the way this guy is, expect is saying it. And when he says non-evidence, you went through all of the rigmarole in some of these panels and looking at the different things and the different types of evidence, this guy just said, nope, it's last resort. And that, to me, is very dangerous. So then here's the patient pain level does not change significantly after opioids. You basically have to discontinue them. Now, this one, he doesn't use the words exactly like this, but it, he infers it. Now, this is um, me. Well, I failed to ask you about it. It came to my attention that even, wait, maybe not. I have to remember where it is. No, it's the next one that's me. It came to my attention that even if the pain is not rated at 10 out of 10, let's say it's 6 or 7 out of 10 in that area for a range of time, and it appears um, patient's not getting any better, would that also indicate that the patient is not achieving a therapeutic benefit? This expert was big on saying the phrase therapeutic benefit, all right? And in that, he never really completely defined what he meant. It looked like it was function and pain relief and a quality of life, but he went a little further in his terminology of therapeutic benefit and started applying it to the pain levels that were written down. Um, if, if there's not a significant change in the pain, yes, sir. They're not achieving a therapeutic benefit. So what he's saying is if, if you've got a patient that had a 10 when they started, and then there are an eight for the next year, that that's not really achieving a therapeutic benefit. That's how he testified in court on the 10 patients that they were charged with, or eight. Okay, and he only talked about two patients. But the paperwork showed the pain levels repeatedly, and he focused on those things. So I'm telling you that so that you can be a little more tuned in to using these words right back in their face. Throw these words right back. I believe the patient is achieving therapeutic benefit because. And then explain what you mean by that. All right? And you can do that in a template form. Function, improve this. Okay? You know, um, quality of life, they're going to church. Things like that. And you believe that they're uh, really receiving a therapeutic benefit from the opioid 
uh, prescriptions. Okay, if it's not a significant change, whether it remains the same or fluctuates just a little, yes, sir. And so he's looking for significant changes. And then I got to go back on cross-examination and get him to admit something. All right, so there's a patient that we talked about, and the patient actually told the doctor, and this was in writing, that he was disgusted with the quality of his life. The patient wrote that in his first visit to the doctor and explained why. And so I say he's disgusted with the quality of his life and he wants it back. That's a fair statement from a patient, is it not? Yes. And then, uh, and when we talk about reducing pain levels, we're not talking about something that has to go from 10 to 0 or 10 to 1, are we? No, ma'am. In fact, it can go from 10 to 6 and still be meaningful, correct? I was trying to get to show the jury that it didn't really matter. It had to be meaningful in the context of the patient. And again, it's individual to that person, yes? Now, here's marijuana as seen through this guy's eyes. So here, so while seeing the doctor while on narcotics, would that be an indication of aberrant drug-related behavior? What happened here was the, the, the same patient with the, the scores uh, and that had a disgusted quality of life. They did a drug screen on him, and it was positive for marijuana. It was just a cup screen, but it was positive. So the, the expert says, the prosecutor says it, and the expert answers, yeah, that's an a indication of aberrant drug behavior. And what would be the proper course of treatment for a patient under those circumstances? Well, in Texas, it's illegal to use marijuana, so you have to approach the individual and say this is not acceptable behavior, that you can either have your drugs or assuming you, you're assuming that they have therapeutic benefit. He was saying, again, there was no therapeutic benefit with this patient. Or I can't prescribe to you because I cannot, in Texas, give you a controlled substance while you're also using illegal drugs. And that's not exactly what it says. But that's how he interpreted it. And so the jury hears that. And I have to go back and try to undo this, and it was not easy to do. And so here's another um, part of it. My question is whether the finding of THC, that would be the active ingredient in marijuana in a blood test, would that fall within, well, finding that and failing to take an action on it or continuing to write prescriptions for a patient with evidence of taking marijuana, would that be below the standards, even the minimum standard under 170? That's the prosecutor's question. The expert answers, yes, sir, it would, whether you find the THC in urine or blood. Then on cross-examination, i got to go back and say, all right, now I want you to go back to this drug testing issue for a minute. I recall that you testified about the finding of THC in a patient's urine. Do you remember it? Yeah. Isn't it fair to say, Dr. X, that there is no real agreement in the world of pain medicine about what a doctor should do regarding THC? And he says there is in Texas. And then I said, all right, and that agreement comes from what entity? So this is one of the acts, I think it's in the Texas Pain Act, that if you know or should have known that somebody has a substance use disorder, you can no longer treat them with controlled substances. You see what he's doing there? He's saying that the person that smoked marijuana has a substance use disorder, but what if it was a one-time thing? Would they be that? What if somebody just went out to their class reunion and smoked it because everybody was getting high, but you've never had any indications on the front end or the back end, right? might not be a good idea. It's certainly aberrant and inappropriate in terms of violating a treatment agreement, but unless you get them help with an addictionologist or a psychologist with experience in addiction medicine. You get the message of this guy? All right, now that's not what the Texas Pain Society's statement on drug testing says, is it? Well, it's possible that there are other opinions, but when you talk to the medical board, they'll tell you that this person, Mary Robinson, who's no longer really in charge of the medical board, that if somebody's using marijuana, you must assume they have a substance use disorder until proven otherwise. 
And this is the same medical board that didn't require drug testing until 2015, right? I knew that. And, and we finally pinned him down on that. And he had to admit that. And here's the rest of the story on Cross. Uh, he's a non-practicing physician. You're currently practicing, yes or no? No, ma'am. When did you give up practicing? December 2011. Continue to talk about evidence-based medicine. Now, you keep using terms like evidence-based medicine, exhausting all conservative treatments, how well a doctor did. Do you recall that? Yes, ma'am. The ladies and tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what it is, and he gives his perspective. I say that's not a reference in, uh, to, uh, there's not a reference to evidence-based medicine in the Texas pain management rule, is there? No, ma'am. Isn't it a fair statement, Dr. X, that evidence-based medicine talks about the best practices, essentially? No, it defines standard of care. By your definition, yeah. And that's not something the Texas Medical Board referred to, did it? In the rule, correct, correct. Okay? The rule said that the Texas Medical Board rule, and it's going to be the case in any of your states, was a minimum standard of care. And this doctor did not want to talk about that language, and he said that it was just a documentation rule. And that's not true. So this guy's out there running around teaching people. Um, and isn't it true that a doctor can be outside of what you're calling standard of care and still not be dealing drugs? Correct. Because if you think of a bullseye, the way I would do it and the way we did it before the jury, the middle of that bullseye is like the best practices in the whole wide world with all the evidence if there was a lot, right, or any. And then outside of that might be good practices, and outside of that might be minimum standard. And outside of that might be negligence. And outside of that is this ring, a big, big zone, big turf, and then reckless disregard. And then beyond that ring is criminal conduct. So you can be a bad clinician, be negligent, and still not be a criminal as long as you're making an effort to try and follow your rules. But in this particular uh, expert's mind, he actually goes down the road and says something else. And that's part of what, what is going to be on appeal and why I can't show you the whole transcript. So we will appeal this. All right, hang on a second because I'm, I'm going to finish. So the medical board uh, rule is not a minimum standard for prescribing. It's a documentation standard. Here's where he says that. He's wrong about this. The Court of Appeals is going to see this, and hopefully we'll be able to reverse this case. Um, anyway, you get the idea of how this goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Um, and there's nothing else. So what I learned, you've got to focus on some of these things. We've already talked about them. The regulators are focusing on this. This is on your stuff that you can see online. Um, and they're focusing on the combinations, and they're focusing on the clarity of your documentation. So anyway, that's about it. Thank you. <laughs> this is the list you might want to do uh, for your homework. Yes, sir. I'm not this lawyer. What I'm, what I'm saying is true of the general public. That's why they're starting all these regulations. Now, I've been a specialist for 30 years. I've not had a single patient with chronic pain become addicted. They're dependent on the drug, but that's not addiction. They're physically dependent. You've got to use the word physically dependent on it. You don't understand the difference. Yeah, I know. I know. It's terrible. It is horrible. 
So, you know, everybody has an opportunity to do something to solve the issue. Your something is to just make a step toward clarity in your documentation to try to address some of these issues. My task is to go after these experts and to continue to try to get better law made and better codes of ethics and things like that. And I work with quite a few lawyers that are helping. But you've got to you know, really do it internal to your patients. And I'm sorry that these regulators are doing these things. It's not going to stop for a while. And I think a lot of the things that have happened in the state licensing boards, some of the stuff makes sense. It's rational. Other stuff is just, you know, fear response. So quite, I don't quit questions quickly. Go ahead. Yes, except for Washington and California. Those other every state in the country has a form of a, a pain management guideline or opioid guideline. But the ones that you just saw are the ones that at the time of publication had published levels in their rules or guidelines. The oldest ones, the oldest ones are California and Washington. Everybody else had something new. And there's even more that have come up since then. So Jack? I know. Yes, absolutely. It's a great physician statement. If you, if you can't get a medication that your patient's been on because of the crackdown at a pharmacy or something, and you're going to have to switch them from, let's say, oxycodone to morphine is the example, you do all your magic science doctory practitionery calculations, and then you write in the patient's chart that you made this choice because you couldn't get this other drug. And that we're going to have to see if this is going to work long term or if it's just a short term thing. To me, that sounds really silly and dangerous, not from the fact that you would do that, but that you even have to consider it. That's the part that to me is insane. Yes, sir, behind you. I'll get you next, ma'am. That's a good question. It was after the medication. And so um, the doctor the summer had a pain score without the medication and a pain score with the medication. And there were changes over time. We actually graphed it out where you could see the pain level would drop and then it would go back up. And these were people working on shrimp boats and oil rigs and everything else. And so it would vary over time. And um, you could see that clearly in the documentation. And so, you know, don't get freaked about a two-level drop and, oh, my God, I'm going to get in trouble. But start thinking of how you document the patient's response, even if that number's off, focusing on the function and getting the patient's words. If I were in your shoes, one of the things that I would do would be to try to create a form that periodically I had my patient fill out that's not just a number, but describing how these medications have helped change their life. Get their words, their language. Okay, not just a number, not just some scrawler diagram coloring in the man and figure or whatever, um, but actually describing. Because if it ever happened that they would be testifying against you, you want something that you can use. And their handwriting, their statement would force them to say, yeah, that was true, or oh, I was lying to you. 
and it will give something that can be done with it. It's kind of like when somebody loses their prescription or whatever. I used to have a form that we would write on and have the patient's handwriting in it. You don't have to spend your time writing it, but you know, do that periodically and see if that helps. One more, because then I'm going to get hurt. Oh, that's great. That's an excellent practice. And so they have the consent to excellent. That, you know, that's, that's an interesting approach, and I, I think it's a good approach. Um, you just want to be careful that you caution them that these things are personal health records. You don't want to leave them around the table, blah, blah, blah. It's their record. They can do what they want to with it. But I think that's really an interesting approach to it. Yeah. I know that sometimes... I'll take copies of things when I go into my doctor's office, but they've rarely given me a packet to take home that I can keep. So that, that's good. Okay, good, good. Did you have a question? Yeah, I've already given them the presented one. See, what I did when I submitted them, I, all these changes and that publication wasn't out yet, so I put a holder there and I dumped them in and they approved them. So now they're on that slide deck for publication. The only thing you won't see are the testimonies and I don't think that matters anyway. So see all the, the, the stuff that'll help you. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. All right, so this is the marijuana question with medical marijuana. My position the other day, my position always has been that when you're dealing with medical marijuana, the best thing you can do is try to communicate with the provider of the medical marijuana. If it's you, then you can talk about how you want to handle that because the, the real issue with, from the DEA's perspective is about whether you should write the opioid and not so much about the marijuana. They're going to say marijuana is illegal if it's a federal investigation. Okay, it doesn't matter. They're going to say it's illegal. They don't care if it's medical marijuana. If they want to say it's illegal, they can say it's illegal. But what I would do is find out who's giving the card, try to verify that it's a real person, talk to the patient that there may come a time that this opioid plus marijuana thing isn't going to work, talk to the provider, make sure that medical marijuana provider knows the patient's using opioids because they may not know that. And then you're going to have to kind of walk a fine line and talk to your board because if they have other issues, not meaning toward you, but if they have other issues with your practice, they'll make an issue of the opioids being given to somebody with medical marijuana too. Um, the best thing that I can tell you is, the Calif by example, the California Medical Board um, made a point, and it was actually, I think, a Medical Society Continuing Education handbook that says this, that... Just because we have legal marijuana and medical marijuana doesn't mean that you're going to be safe prescribing opioids. It's a federal deal. And they say that in there, and it kind of gives you their perspective on it. Colorado says it a little different way. Colorado, same thing, right? They say that they want in chronic pain management, where you've got chronic opioid therapy being considered, to consider um, abuse factors or aberrant, uh, potential aberrant factors, and one of them they list is marijuana, marijuana use. So they want the providers to consider the marijuana use as they're considering whether to give the opioid. And they say that marijuana use is a risk factor in that guideline. So they also say alcohol is a risk factor. 
So, you know, that's how these boards are going to look at that, and it really makes it very tough for you. So, again, your rationale, why are you giving them the opioid if they're on the medical marijuana? What's the condition? You know, wh why is that beneficial to them? And if it's a, a lower dose of opioid or you've got a real good control on the person, chances are you'll fly right by with that unless there's something else unraveling. Um, but I'm not, there's no promises there. It's one of the most dangerous areas right now because of the federal government's involvement in the practice of medicine. And I don't think they belong there, but they are. And until this smooths out a little bit, I think it's a riskier issue than it might have been before all of this other stuff blew up. No. By definition, it was state or union again. No, but in your state, no. They're not going to consider that because they talk about that in the handbook and they distinguish the two things. No, it's not necessarily strictly cancer care, but they're. Go, go read your guidelines. You don't, you're arguing to the wrong person. <laughs> Well, that's where I go back to my Utah guidelines. There's a, those are a really pretty robust set of guidelines from Doppel. Okay. All right. Well, good. And, you know, try to find something in writing that allows you to hang your hat on it. But I don't think you'll get most people to agree that chronic, non-terminal, or non-cancer type pain is the same as palliative care. It, it, it seems like it could fit the definition, and I get why you say that, but I don't think the board would look at it that way.